So what do you do when you've been wronged? Maybe it's something small like getting cut off on the road. Maybe it's when someone makes an insensitive comment or worse, maybe it's direct and pointed. They make a rude comment meant to harm you, to bring you down a little bit. Maybe it's bigger. What about those times when you're intentionally left out of the group and you know it? Or maybe your character has been defamed at work. Someone's trying to make you look bad so that they can look good, so that they're poised for the promotion. Maybe it's something even harder, even more sinister, like broken trust in a relationship. What do you do when you've been wronged? Most of us, if we're honest, we've got that gut-level instinct towards revenge. Now, some of you are impulsive, quick-tempered, so you waste no time in dishing out revenge on a hot plate. You're seething, you're angry. But some of you believe that revenge is a dish best served cold. So instead of meeting out justice right away, you let it simmer. Kind of think of all the ways you, you want the best plan that really gets back at them. And like everything in the digital world, if you don't know the best way towards revenge, did you know you can Google it? I did that this week. I typed in, how do you get revenge? And I was shocked, but not really, to see that there are thousands of websites, there's videos, there's people out there who are revenge experts. And we'll tell you, here's how you do it. Hopefully by the end of the day, in the sermon, you go, okay, that's not a good idea. There were all kinds of tips and tactics on how to dish out revenge. Some were petty, like signing up people for spam email lists. You imagine that? You wake up one day and your inbox is flooded with even more spam than usual, and you think, what's happened? Or if you know their phone number, setting up a string of early AM wake-up calls. That would really make me mad. Some were downright evil and actually illegal. I couldn't believe they were just saying these things out there. And I'm not going to mention those here. Now, why do we feel this impulse towards revenge? Why? Well, according to the Journal of Social Psychology in a study from 2019, revenge is not simply done to punish offenders but we do it because we feel like it restores our self-esteem and it's a way to get back power. Here's one of the things they said in the study. Real-life revenge is not so much focused on deterrence, but on restoring self-esteem or a sense of power. And the act of revenge does not need to be instantaneous nor proportional. See, when, we, when we've been wronged, there, there's something that's, that's been taken from us, right? There's real damage done to our sense of worth and our dignity. In fact, it, there's like a debt that's been incurred. And we feel a deep need for restitution and restoration of that debt. But here's the problem with revenge. According to another journal, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, revenge actually has a paradoxical effect. Meaning it doesn't do what we think it's going to do. The lead researcher on the project wrote this. When we don't get revenge, 
we're able to trivialize the event, which means we can like make it small, right? We tell ourselves that because we didn't act on our vengeful feelings that it wasn't a big deal. And so here's the result. It's easier to forget it and move on. But when we do get revenge, we can no longer trivialize the situation. Instead, we think about it a lot. And then rather than providing closure, it does the opposite. It keeps the wound open and fresh. That's very insightful. See, when we learn to let things go, eventually we come to the conclusion, the real conclusion, that it wasn't such a big deal. And then you're able to actually move on from it. But when you do get revenge... Not only do you spend all that time thinking about it before the revenge, but afterwards you continue to think about it. It's become this artifact in your life. And instead of allowing time, instead of allowing um, the the, the grace of God to heal you, that wound just stays open and it gets infected. Francis Bacon was an English philosopher, statesman, and scientist and had like probably the coolest last name of all time. He said, a man that studieth revenge keeps his own wounds green, which would otherwise heal and do well. See, conventional wisdom will tell you, pursuing revenge doesn't provide the hoped for results. It doesn't. So far, I haven't even mentioned what the Bible has to say on revenge. I'm just looking at conventional, everyday wisdom. People who have studied this, philosophers all saying, yeah, revenge isn't a good idea. It's like drinking poison and hoping it harms your enemy. you imagine that? You're drinking the poison, waiting for it to do something to the other person when who is it going to kill? It's going to kill you. It just keeps wounds fresh and open. But what do we do with that impulse to do something? Is there justice to be found? If we decide to let the matter go, who will take up our cause? Who will take up the matter? What can we actually do when we've been wronged? Now, thankfully, this morning, we're not just left with conventional wisdom. We have the wisdom and direction of God given to us in the scriptures. And so we're looking at the final verses in Romans 12 as we close out our transformed series. And here Paul is going to give us three things that we can do. Actual things that we can do. We can put our energy towards something when we've been wronged. So here's our outline today. First, Paul tells us to seek peace, not vengeance. That's the first directive. It's the first thing you can do when you've been wronged. Seek peace, not vengeance. Number two, Paul will tell us we're to love and serve our enemies. Not only are we to seek peace and withhold vengeance, we're also called to love and serve our enemies. And then finally, number three, we are to overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Let's jump into verse 17 and start unpacking what Paul has for us as we seek peace, not vengeance. Paul says this, repay no one evil for evil. Paul begins first by prohibiting against vengeance. He says, it's really direct, it's clear, it's not really debatable, it shouldn't be very confusing. He says, repay evil, repay no one evil for evil. And just in case you think this is a one-off from Paul, 
He says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5.15. He says, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What is this? This is a command towards self-control. Let's say that together. Self-control. That wasn't very good. Let's try that again. Self-control. All right, we'll work on it. Now, it seems passive, doesn't it? He's saying, don't repay evil for evil. But it actually requires a ton of self-control. Self-control isn't a non-active, passive thing. It actually requires an incredible amount of active thought and redirection. Because everything in you is wanting to do something evil. Self-control, you're having to hold yourself back. You can't do that passively, can you? Now, just in case you think Paul is just narrowly speaking inside the church, because some of Romans 12 has been about your relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. At this point in Romans 12, Paul has, you know, he's taken a step back and he's just saying, repay no one. No one. Every single person. So that includes everyone you come into contact with. So what that means is there should be no personal vendettas with people inside the church or outside the church. So that means your neighbors, like the actual people who live side to side to you, the people in your, on, your, on your street, in your condo, in your apartment, in your building, all of them. It also means your proverbial neighbor, just like the people who live in the community around you, your coworkers, your family members. I'll say that one again. Your family members. Those are some of the hardest people to love, aren't they? Your classmates, people in your community, and yes, even that jerk on I-95. Repay no one, even him, evil for evil. Now, some of you might be thinking, Clint, I've read the Old Testament. I know it says somewhere in there about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I got you. I'm allowed to do this. And yes, you'll see that come up in Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, It's called lex talionis, or the law of retribution, or the law of retaliation. But that's actually a misunderstanding. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is not licensed for you to go seek out your own personal justice, as long as the punishment fits the crime. That's actually not what the Bible is teaching. In fact, it's the opposite. You see, what was happening at that time was there was no formalized government And so people were out there enacting justice as they saw fit. So something would happen, they would think, well, here's what I'm going to go do about it, and they would go. The problem is personal vendettas and personal justice never really keeps it at eye for an eye, right? We tend to go on, we, we tend to take it a little bit further. And so you have this escalating non-ending thing. So you go and attack your neighbor because you think they've done something against you, but you mete out just a little bit more justice. And they think, oh gosh, now I got to retaliate. They took it over the line. So then they come and do the same thing to you. But they don't go just at the line, right? They go over the line. And it's this endless cycle. And Mosaic Law was trying to put an end to that. These early documents are actually setting up their very first government as the people of God. So what it's saying is, look, people do wrong other people. And there should be punishment. There should be some kind of justice as a community. 
the punishment has to fit the crime. Which means that for justice to be served, the punishment couldn't be less than the crime so as to withhold justice, but the punishment couldn't be more than the crime so as to enact further injustice. It's setting a standard of equality. And it was to put into place a, 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 a system so that lawlessness would not give way to over-the-top vengeance that only leads to more and more violence. And you weren't supposed to do it on your own. It was meant to be brought before the community so that while you're sitting there seething with white-hot anger, you would have a group of people who care about you, who they care about justice, but because they're not personally staked in the matter, they can look at it with more rational, clear eyes. Are you rational when you're angry? No, we're actually insane when we're angry. We think things and do things that we wouldn't do normally, right? Temporary insanity. So the idea was bring it before the community, have them look at it and decide what would justice be in this situation. It's actually putting a stop to personal vendettas. Now let me state this clearly. A prohibition against vengeance and revenge is not a prohibition against legal and civil justice. Sometimes people have tried to use these verses in Romans 12 to say, look, if you've been wronged, you can't press charges, right? You repay no one evil for evil. That Justice is not evil. It's good. So if you've been wronged criminally, I encourage you, press charges. If you've been wronged in a civil kind of way, we have one of the best systems, not perfect, but one of the best systems in the entire world at pursuing civil restitution. This is not a prohibition against that. This doesn't mean as a Christian you can't press charges or seek restitution. You know why? You know what comes after Romans 12? Romans 13. You know what Romans 13 is all about? God's grace and the gift of government to speak into and settle matters of criminal and civil justice. Again, is it perfect? Far from it. We can poke holes at all of the ways in which our justice system needs to improve. But it's not completely awful either. It's, it's the best we've got. What Paul's specifically calling believers to here is a self-control against the impulse to personally take up matters of revenge, to settle your own score or to get even. See, you don't even have to teach children this, do you? I never sat down with my kids and say, listen, if he takes your toy, you just slug him right in the face. Never. They just do that. See, if a child snatches a toy, get ready. You better duck because swift revenge is sure to follow. Now, as we get older, we go, man, I don't want to end up on the news today. So instead of just outright slugging the guy, what do we do? We sit back and go, all right. See what you did there. And the wheels get turning. We've just become more sophisticated in our revenge. Doesn't mean we don't plot and plan. And Paul is saying for believers, this is not an option. Look at me. When you've been wronged, your response to that wrong is your responsibility. It doesn't mean that what they did wasn't wrong. 
And it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be some action taken. But you are responsible for the actions you take. Your response is your responsibility. We are responsible for how we react when we've been wronged. That doesn't justify the wrong. It doesn't even matter what the wrong is. It's just saying that the way that we respond, we are actually held accountable for as well. So what are we supposed to do? Well, in addition to the command against the negative, don't repay evil for evil, Paul gives us a command towards the positive. He says, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. So Paul's saying, take the energy of all that impulse. Take the energy of of, of all that's welling up inside of you, and instead of putting that energy towards sinful ends, he says, direct it towards godly ends. He says, give thought to what is honorable. It's that Greek word kalos or kalos. It's, it, it, it's a word that talks about moral, a, a, a beautiful morality. It's used in distinction from the previous line of evil, kakos. He's saying, don't do what is evil, but do what is good. Kakos is referring to that which is morally reprehensible and evil. And kalos is what is good, proper, honest, honorable, or morally beautiful. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 4. We like to put this one on coffee mugs, but you realize Philippians 4.8 comes after he's talked about conflict within the church. He tells two women who are in conflict to agree with one another. He talks about what to do with all the anxiety and angst in your life. And then he says these words, finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, there's our word, Kalos. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, when you're in conflict, are you thinking about what's honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable? No. It's the opposite of those things. And Paul's saying, I know that. I'm human too. So when you're in those situations, you've got to take all of that energy and direct it somewhere else towards what is good, true, and beautiful. So instead of reacting or plotting, Paul says, give thought to what is morally beautiful. See, our delight, our desire when we've been wronged should not be to offend or get even, but to do what is morally beautiful or what is honorable in the sight of all, meaning not just your brothers and sisters in Christ. That we need to live in such a way that even the world will look at that and go, wow, well, that's different. It's not what I would have expected. In other words, our response to those who've wronged us should be one that shows believers and unbelievers what is good, true, and beautiful. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. Of course, it's not easy. What's easy is to want revenge, And oftentimes, if we don't go over the top, the world around us will go, hey, you had to do what you had to do, right? The world will go, I get it. You had to do something. But Paul is saying we have a higher calling from God. We are not seeking the world's approval, doing revenge in a way that is culturally acceptable. We are living with an audience of one. Paul's saying we have a higher calling from God, and God cares about what we take harbor into our hearts. You know what a harbor is? It's an inlet. It's surrounded by land, and the water in that harbor is calmer 
than the water around it. It actually, the, the land around it provides shelter from the waves and the winds of open sea. So a boat takes harbor, it's safe, it can dock, it's not going to be thrashed around, right? They can come off the boat, do business, come back. So when we harbor something into our hearts, what are we doing? We're giving it access to the docks of our minds. We're, we're giving it room to enter into the desires of our hearts. And God is saying, I don't want bitterness and rage to poison you. That's why God cares about what's in our hearts. So for our protection and for our witness to the gospel, Paul is saying it's not enough to just not retaliate. You've got to do something more. You've got to take it a step further and give thought to what is honorable. You can't just have an open bed of fertile ground. You know why? Weeds grow there, right? You've got to have something there. Our hearts can't be filled with rage and vengeance with this intense desire to get back because it's like drinking the bitterness of poison and hoping it will harm the other person. Paul, just like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, demands that our hearts be filled with love and forgiveness and mercy even to our enemies. In fact, most especially towards them. Now Paul adds a word of everyday practicality. Verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He says, look, peace, be a peacemaker. Seek it out. As far as it depends on you, be a peacemaker. You notice he's riffing on Jesus here from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 9. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And that word peacemaker is important because it's not just blessed are the peaceful or blessed are those who find peace. If you want peace, guess what you got to do? You got to make it. You got to seek it. That means we can't be needlessly argumentative and offensive. We're to strive for peace. And Paul says, as far as it depends on you. In other words, he's saying, look, if you find yourself in a position, in a relationship where there is a lack of peace, make sure that that lack of peace is on them, not on you. You are to strive towards it. So you go into conflict looking for points of commonality, points of common agreement, not points of disagreement. It means you believe the best in people as often as you can. And you know what I love about Paul? He is not some pie-in-the-sky idealist saying, look, we're all going to just listen. Let's all live at peace. He says, as far as it depends on you. He is a realist. He knows sometimes peace will not be possible in every situation. So there are going to be times where it's just not possible. Paul's not calling us to violate the truth of the Bible. He's not calling us to be weak on truth or to abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ for some artificial peace. He's not calling us to waver in our devotion to Christ to make peace with those who stand opposed to God. There are going to be people because of your fidelity to Christ who will stand in constant opposition to you. And there's nothing you can do about that. Jesus told us, listen, I did not just come to bring peace, but also a sword. There's going to be two divided against three and five divided against another. Brother and sister sometimes. The ultimate goal is not peace, but it is a great goal to strive towards as far as it depends on you. 
Sometimes that peace will not be extended back to you. In that case, peace is not attainable. But make sure it's not because you didn't strive for it or work very difficult for it. Sometimes people will refuse to reconcile. And at that point, you can wash your hands of it. You've done all that you can do. So then what are we to do after we've sought peace and not vengeance? Paul goes on in verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, like a good pastor, Paul addresses his readers as beloved. You'll see him do this often if you'll slow down as you're reading the Bible. And in that one word is a reminder of the gospel. You are beloved. In that one word, you have the life-changing reality that you have been made an object of God's love. You didn't start out as an object of God's love. You were an enemy, right? A stranger, an outcast, and yet because of Christ, you've been brought in. You've been brought near. You've become beloved. And that should change how you now go and demonstrate that kind of love to others. See, when you've been shown great love, there's a responsibility to go and show that same kind of love. So even though you've been mistreated by others, you should never forget that we are dearly loved children of God, chosen to be his own, even while we were still yet enemies. Romans Romans 5, Paul's already covered this. But he said, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. He's saying, look, People won't give up their life for anybody. But for a really good person, someone might give up their life. But what does God do? He shows his love for us in that while we were still enemies, not good people, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled Shall we be saved by his life? And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see what he's saying? It's powerful. Don't miss it. Being wronged by others can leave deep wounds. I know that. You know that. But the love of God is a healing solve to bind up your wounds. See, God loved you when you were an enemy. When we were opposed to God. Now we've been brought near. And Paul is saying that is enough to bind up those wounds. And to be sent out to go show that same kind of love to your enemies. If God could love us while we were enemies. The implication is so can we. We can love others. He restates his point again. Never avenge yourselves. But leave the matter to the wrath of God. Now, when we hear the wrath of God, we cringe a little bit, don't we? We're kind of embarrassed by that, aren't we? We just wish these verses weren't in the Bible. Look at me. The wrath of God, that God has wrath, is one of the most beautiful attributes of God. Let me say that again. The wrath of God is one of his most beautiful attributes. Here's why. You will never see an apology for the wrath of God in Scripture. Have you noticed that? 
It just says, beloved, leave it for the wrath of God. With like, there's no parentheses like, when you say that out loud, whisper it. Or avoid these verses. Or I'm sorry that God has to be a just God. Never. There's no apology ever given for the wrath of God. This is, there's not a hint of embarrassment here. This is not God's dark side. Like, like that God has some, some side to him that's kind of shady. God doesn't have a dark side. In fact, John tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So what is God's wrath? Let me define it for you. God's wrath is his settled opposition towards sin and evil. When God looks at sin and evil, he doesn't have to like think about what he thinks about it. It's settled. It is evil and it's sin. And guess what? He is 100% opposed to it. The wrath of God is not a temper tantrum. See, we often equate what we see a toddler do when they throw themselves on the floor as a temper tantrum, screaming because they're not getting their way. We think, well, that's, that's the wrath of God. That's not God's wrath. It's not a fit of rage. It's his commitment to deal with sin and evil. It's his justice in action. See, we have no problem saying that God is just, that God is fair, that God will deal with sin. But when that justice takes action, that is his wrath. That's all it is. It's justice in action. So what that means is this. Every sin in the history of the world will receive the full wrath of God. God does not sit idly by. He will not let justice, uh, injustice go unpunished. No sin goes unpunished. Every sin in the history of the world, including yours and mine, will either be dealt with on the cross or will be dealt with in hell. One or the other. One or the other. That's why it's not our responsibility to take matters into our own hands. Because God will execute his justice in a way that is consistent with his character so that his justice will be good, it will be true, just, righteous, and holy. Who in this room would say that you can offer that kind of justice? Never. None of us can. Only God can execute perfect justice, and that is exactly what he intends to do. And in God's perfection, he will bring his wrath to bear on sin and evil and those who do them at the right time and in the right way. So when you wonder who will seek justice when it seems like justice can't be found, who will make sure that every wrong is righted? Who will repay and restore what's been taken from me? Paul tells us the God of justice will take up your case. So hear me, family. There are going to be times when you've pursued every legal action. There are going to be times when you have stated your case. There are going to be times when you have pleaded your cause and you will come up empty in terms of the balanced scales of justice. Don't be confused or don't be uh, caught unaware that that will happen. I'm trying to tell you that is going to happen at some point in your life. 
But God is not blind to it. He's not ignorant of it. He will take up your case. He will ensure that every wrong is righted, that every matter of justice is ultimately settled. You know, this isn't the first time Paul has talked about the wrath of God in the book of Romans. Twelve times in Romans, he brings up God's justice in action. Paul says that our own ungodliness and unrighteousness is storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath to come. And Paul also says that God has the right and the responsibility to deal with our sin in a decisive way, which is exactly what his wrath is. In Romans 5, he says, those who have been justified by his blood are saved from the wrath of God. So all of us have sinned and stored up wrath. But if we want to escape and be safe from that wrath, we've got to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's what sets Paul up to say in Romans 12, that those who have been saved from the wrath of God can trust God in these matters of justice. That's why you don't have to avenge yourself. That's why you do not have to take up your own case because we have a just avenger who will fight for you. So listen to me. You will not be able to overcome your feelings of revenge unless you are convinced that ultimately there will be justice and God will set all accounts right. It won't be possible to never repay evil for evil unless you believe that truth. It's that truth that will transform and change your mind, your hearts, and your actions. You will fall prey to retaliation in the present if you do not trust that God will vindicate you in the future. This is counterintuitive. It goes against our logic But that's what faith does sometimes. It requires faith to deny these natural impulses and trust God to handle the matter for us. That's why Paul says, when you've been wronged, seek peace, not vengeance. Let's go to our second point. Paul gives us another directive. He says, love and serve your enemies. Verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So not only are we to seek peace, not vengeance, Paul takes it one step further. We're supposed to resist the inclination towards revenge, seek peace, but we're also called to seek the good of our enemies. And then Paul quotes from Proverbs 25, verses 21 through 22. And he says, give food and drink to our hungry and thirsty enemies, which is an example of meeting their basic needs. So as you look at your enemies, you should be thinking, These, our enemies, are not our enemies. You're not supposed to objectify them. You're supposed to see them as who they are. Humans made in the image of God. And guess what humans made in the image of God have? They have needs. And by God's grace and provision, we are called to seek to meet them. In other words, we are to be so freed from the impulse towards vengeance that we take all that energy and we seek their good. So here's how this works. All that energy that starts to build in you towards plotting and planning, you're not supposed to just quench that. You're supposed to redirect that energy towards plotting and planning Christ-like love and service. This is incredibly countercultural, but that's what the gospel is. It's love on display. See, our culture 
can clap right along with love your neighbor, serve your friends, do good. But to love and serve your enemy is out of step with our culture. Now, did you notice in that verse, that phrase, heap burning coals on his head? Seems kind of strange, doesn't it? What does that mean? It's the most difficult part of this passage to interpret because when you first read through it, it seems like the idea of heaping burning coals on someone's head is negative and punitive, right? No, no one wants that today. It seems like some sort of backhanded move towards vengeance. So Paul says, don't seek vengeance, but find a way to heap burning coals on their heads, right? And it seems to run counter to the entire theme of this passage, which is to bless and not curse, to seek peace, not vengeance, to trust God to settle on all accounts. So here's what happens. We have to read this verse in its context and read this metaphor literately. Not literally, those are two different words, but literately. This is literature, it's, it's a metaphor. So we have to unpack that metaphor. See, what Proverbs and Paul are saying We're to love and serve our enemies and show them a genuine undue kindness that has the potential to bring a sense of burning conviction about their wrongdoings against you. So so, so in this scenario, you've been wronged, right? And the person who's wronged you, what do they expect from you? Retaliation, right? They're gearing up for, for evil, evil for evil, blow for blow. But what do you do? You return goodness for evil. You've responded with love and grace and kindness. And it's unexpected. And often when that happens, that person sees what they're doing as foolish, as raging, and the hope is it would bring conviction to their conscience. So metaphorically speaking, the unpleasantness of burning coals is like the unpleasant reality of conviction. Who likes to be convicted? Who likes to feel like an idiot, right? Like you, 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 you saw this person the wrong way. You thought they were an enemy and now they're serving you. And that, that kind of cognitive dissonance of wrestling like, man, have I got this wrong? No one likes to be confronted with their folly and sin. And it's that unpleasantness that Paul is talking about here. The hope is that as he or she is thinking and processing what's happened, they would see their evil, they would see their sin and come to a heart posture of repentance. And just like all conviction and repentance, there's pain involved. But it's the kind of pain and discomfort that leads towards repentance. The hope is that the sting of conviction and the the pain of remorse leads to a self-examination of their sin, come into a posture of forgiveness and begging God for forgiveness. Now again, it's not guaranteed to happen, but the wisdom of Proverbs is that this kind of kindness would lead them to repentance. Again, your enemy may not respond that way, but that's not your responsibility. But what is your responsibility is to do everything you can to love them with that kind of kindness that it might happen now we've been talking for 40 minutes now about our enemies and I wonder if at any point along the way an image of somebody has come in your mind I see laughter those are laughs of recognition you're like yeah I see them 
Like one minute in, I saw him, Clint. Surely there's someone who's at best difficult for you to get along with and at worst, someone who's wronged you in a deeply grievous way. Do you see how this passage isn't theoretical? It's painfully practical. Because all of us live long enough and you get people who you would consider to be your enemy. And as you begin to picture that person in your head, you should begin to ask, if you're trying to apply this passage to your lives, how do I seek peace with this person that goes all the way to serving them? Now, like all imperatives and directives in the Bible, we're to give careful thought to how we love and serve our enemies. We're never called to do these things indiscriminately. Do you know that the Bible always assumes wisdom with obedience? So you're to be thoughtful about how you do this. So if the enemy that's come to your mind is an extremely harmful and toxic person who has wronged you in a deeply grievous way, wisdom might say you don't need to interact with them again. But maybe you can direct your love and service to them by praying for them. You see how this works? You've got to use wisdom in how you live this out. See, I don't think Paul has in mind you putting yourself in an unnecessary, extremely harmful situation. What I do think Paul has in mind is us to actually take these commands and learn how to deal with everyday conflict in a cruciform, Christ-like manner. That's what he's calling us to do. This isn't meant to be theoretical. It's actually meant to shape what you do the rest of today, tomorrow, and the day after that. What do we do when we've been wronged? We seek peace, not vengeance, and we trust God to settle our accounts. And we love our enemies and serve them and put our energy into Christ-like service. And now Paul's final words, overcome evil with good. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here, has, here Paul has a final charge. He says, if someone has done evil to you and you give in to the temptation towards retaliation and it overtakes you, here's what's happened. The evil has overcome. The evil has defeated you. It has conquered you. That word for overcome or conquered is the Greek word Nike, which is where we get our brand Nike, which means to conquer. That's, Paul is saying don't be conquered by evil, but instead conquer evil with good. That's how we conquer evil. The, the evil that the enemy wants to uh, enact against you, you don't conquer that by adding more evil. You conquer it by, uh, by adding good. See, there's this principle in the Bible. Light scatters darkness. Good conquers evil. Overcome e uh, evil with good is counteractive. So instead of pouring gasoline on the fires of conflict, Paul is saying, extend the healing waters of grace. Instead of an endless cycle of retaliation, we are to extend grace. That's what counteracting means. It means to act against something so as to neutralize it. If you fight fire with fire, what do you get? More fire. That doesn't neutralize it. Going blow for blow creates an endless cycle where everyone just comes out bloodied and bruised. And Paul's saying, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I know of no better example than Jesus himself. 
1 Peter chapter 2, he says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter's saying, listen, if you're sinning and get punished for it, that does not emulate the example of Christ. But if you were seeking to do good and suffer because of it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, he goes on, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter's saying this is the cruciform or Christ uh, cross-shaped way of living. See, we've been called to follow in the example of Christ who suffered evil for good. 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, what did he do? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, here it is, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Friends, the death of Christ is a living example for us. That we are to die to the sin of retaliation, retribution, and we are to live to righteousness. The only way we can live this transformed life is to realize that Jesus died for us in our place. It was his stripes that lead to our healing and our transformation. He died so that you and I could live this way. So we are able to let go of this need and drive for retribution to the degree that you entrust yourself to him who judges justly. If you want to overcome evil with good, if you want to seek peace, not vengeance, if you want to love and serve your enemies, you have to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. That's how good overcomes evil. We entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Remember, you were once an enemy. And in his great love for you, Jesus died to make you a son and daughter of Christ. And when you put that gospel in your bones, it becomes steel in your back to seek peace, not vengeance, to love and serve your enemies and to overcome evil with good. Let's pray.